and welcome everybody to the inaugural episode of the Awkwardly Big Dice podcast. I am your wise wizard host, Dan, and I am with my co-host and the saviour, my saviour, from the life of the Forever DM, our wonderful warlock, Rob. Evening. Was that a satisfactory intro for you? <laughs> sure it was. Well, we have a few topics we are going to discuss today, but to give everybody a little uh, insight into into us, as it is our first episode, we'll go through sort of our favourite class, basically, give you an idea of why it's our favourite class, and that should give you a little insight into into us as players, uh, and maybe uh, a little bit of us as as DMs as as well. Um, but as I said, I am Dan, formerly a forever DM and a lover of the wizard class. Uh, many reasons why I love the wizard class, but none more so than the number of spells you get to pick from and its versatility. Um, I mean, arguably one of the most balanced classes in um, in in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, there's a spell to counter everything, uh, including you know counter spell and and, and such or display uh, spell magic if you're looking to dispel a magical effect. Um, all the all the subclasses have uh, enough variety. In my opinion, um, to make every 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 level up feel unique, and to make the game seem fun, um, whether it be the, as I played last, the divination wizard, um, because divination wizards can predict the future, and you, you team up their uh, their portent. With uh, silvery barbs, and uh, you're pretty much always uh, got a good chance of uh, getting the DM to roll a few times extra uh, on those attacks. Kind of confirmed as a DM that was quite irritating. <laughs> Definitely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I suppose my favourite class would probably be the Warlock. Uh, for those of my friends that I play with, that would definitely not come over surprise. No. I think I like it because it gives such good roleplay opportunities. Uh, you've always got that patron, some something that grants you power, whether it's a devil, a celestial being, a great old mystic entity, a creature from the fae. Many, many different types of things can grant you power. And I think that's the beauty of it because the different subclasses to it can really diversify it, <clears throat> similar to the wizard in, in many ways. Oh, yeah. Don't get too many spells, but you do get the spell slots back on the short rests. But it's got that all intoxicating cantrip that no other class gets the Eldritch Blast. <laughs> the king of cantrips, one might say. Yeah. And the customization well, of the locations as well really make it unique every time you play it. There's some debate to say that maybe Guidance is a close like contender um, because it's useful outside. Of its use outside of combat, but it's pretty. Also, you're not going to go for it during uh, a fight, whereas Eldritch Blast has that 
that power. Yeah. And it Think scales. And it scales amazingly. Like, there, like Guidance doesn't, so it leads us out on that. I think that's the thing about Guidance as well. Like You do feel a bit silly like every time someone's told to roll this check or roll that check to go Guidance. Um, it gets a bit tiresome after a while, so I think that's probably why I don't like that one as much, but I always love Eldritch Blast. It's always satisfying. It is. What's your... Uh... Do you have a favourite uh, patron? With a... That's like asking me to name my last meal. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I've had a lot of fun playing the Great Old One um, as somebody who is a big fan of Lovecraft and Eldritch Horror and those sorts of genres of literature. Uh, it's great to dive into the layers of insanity that can bring and role play that is uh, it's quite a challenge um, but then I've played the undead uh, magpie fits with the reaper as a patron uh, I've played hex blades traditionally and non-traditional um, I'd say I do always like the flavor that the the great old one gives you though yeah it's different right it's not typical uh, uh... I guess the stereotype a little bit would be the um, the fiend patron, right? Yes. And, Deal with the devil. And there is something. Uh, I'll say it's supposed to. Great old one is supposed to be that alien that that Cthulhu's example. I think it gives in the in the player's handbook. Yeah. Um. So and it, it's the alien or uh, nature of it can make can it give you so much choice, so much freedom. Um. When you do choose that subclass, it's that doorway to madness. That's so enticing, especially if you've got a good DM that will uh, really bounce off you with the the RP aspect and, and really enhance the the overall playing experience. Plus, there's nothing like telepathically tormenting your party. Yeah, telepathy—it's uh, always fun. Or it's just a bit like, uh, well, several of the spells that can can be used to to read minds. They're always they're always great fun, which is why you let the the, uh, the sorcerer subclass um, uh, that allows you to the I was at the aberrant mind is it aberrant mind that allows you to um, to do that sort of stuff as a as a subclass as well. Um, but it's not a warlock; it's a sorcerer, and sorcerers are different and not as good, in my opinion. But it's my personal <laughs> I opinion. Think class well with warlock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we well then I think we're we're everyone should understand now the sort of players we are. Someone who likes to smash out one cantrip a lot, an occasional little flavor of spells, and someone who just likes uh, a variety in his choice of spells. Who spends a year looking at his spell list, deciding what he wants to do from his uh, from his spell book. But since we are at the beginning and we just started, we shall start with some tips for new starters. Is a is a good shout. Uh, why don't you take this one away, Rob? Well, it's such a broad subject, but I would say a a, a really good tip for new starters is to just not be afraid to make mistakes. Um, I'd say now that being my good friend Dan, are veterans, yeah. both DMs and players, very experienced, and we still make mistakes, so. I think that's probably 
one of the key uh, parts of it. Every game will be different. Every DM will be different. Um, it's important to find that that group that works for you as well. Uh, and understand what everybody at the table wants out of the game, and and what kind of, I suppose, story the DM is, is attempting to tell uh, with the with the collaborative help of of their players. Um, but don't be afraid to make mistakes. And if something, if you want to achieve something, just say, "Can I do this?" And the DM will hopefully engage. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's you make mistakes. Everyone does. I do every day. Um, I will do when we start our next campaign. No doubt there'll be <laughs> there'll be mistakes. But you you even as even as a, if you're a new um, dungeon master. Uh, you will make mistakes. You aren't going to remember all the many, many pages of the uh, player's handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide and all the various stats from the uh, uh, the Monster Manual. Never mind everything you've got in Tasha's and Xanathar's and now Big B's and, and, and all the many other books that are now Fizzbands uh, and all these, like, you're just, you're not going to remember everything, so be um keep that in mind when when you are when you are starting out and if you've got a a good dm uh they shouldn't have any problem with uh, answering questions that you have um so that you can learn uh, and you never know the dm might learn something new i definitely learned something <laughs> new like we were playing uh in um our not the last campaign, because the last campaign we did with Strahd, uh, the one before that I DM'd, and we uh, got on to uh, smite spells, not the actual feature oh. of the paladin, the, uh, uh, the smite, but the actual like um, wrathful smite and thunderous smite and these sort of things. And there was a whole debate that we ended up having around uh, its usage and the language that is, in, is of course, in that. And then, of course, you find an even larger debate on Reddit. On Reddit, yeah, yeah <laughs> so, you do. Which muddies the waters of, of those sorts of decisions. Um, any other new tips or tips for new players? Yeah, um, one of my key things, and this might just be me and the players I play with, or the way that I think, but I think that flavor is much more important than than new players realize. So a lot of new players will come along with an idea of they want to play this. A lot of time it's like a character from a movie or a video game or, or a TV show or a book or whatever it is. They have this idea and they think, well, I've got to find the perfect class and the perfect subclass to make it work. And you'd be surprised how much you can make it work with whatever you like, whatever fits. Um, and I think... It's like, my th example I always think about is uh, a pirate, for example. Someone comes in and says, I want to play like a swashbuckling pirate. Yeah. And then, the, so they automatically look through it all and they see the word swashbuckler right next to rogue uh, in the subclasses. That isn't always going to be the best choice for you, depending on, how, on what you want to do and how you want to have other aspects of your character's background. It might be that you prefer, or you might uh, like the some magic to be thrown in. So you might think, oh well I can go I could go play a Cauldron Swords bard. Or I can or I want to have a bit more connection to the sea and the gods of the sea. You might want to go Tempest Cleric. 
Um, that can or Warlock up. with the Thoughtless. Or you can you Warlock over, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Always Warlock. <laughs> Always bring it around. You, you could even, you could, you just, I would say you could play any wizard in some degree and make it work. Um, Rob has a character that he's played once uh, who is a blade singer. Yeah. Kind of not a pirate, but definitely a swashbuckler. Um, it's pirate vibes. It's pirate vibes. For sure. Yeah. With, with but it's, it's, I think it's important to remember that the the class that you choose is, is the mechanics that you're going to be implementing and some of the features and things you can do. But a lot of what you want as a character is is just fla- what we call flavor. The um, limit is your creativity at the end of the day. It is. It is. Um, and yeah, it's a game about creativity, about imagination. I think uh, another tip for any budding new starters would be don't get too bogged down in the rules. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're the only new person at the table. Um, just It's always about just what what's fun. Um, be aware that you are there to have fun. Uh, engage with the with the party, engage with the table, so to say, um, and look for opportunities to to do that. D and D isn't just about combat. D and D is made up of three pillars. Uh, if anybody's never heard of those, there is combat. That's obviously one of the biggest pillars, being that the player's handbook is probably about seventy percent made up of combat rules, but there's also exploration and role play. So always bear that in mind that it's not just about, it's not a video game. It's not just about running up to things and hitting them. Uh, there are more than one ways to, to skin a cat, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, Steph won't like that. <laughs> but there is, um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, uh, some players will, It is, you know, combat is their thing and that is the thing they're always going to enjoy. And they just want to go through dungeons and kill stuff and get loot. And if you want to do Nothing that. wrong with that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Go for it. Have fun. Uh, it isn't the way I like to play, or I like. It'll even you're not going to find it in the way that I DM. Um, I love story and character, and that's always what I'm going to push. Um, I'll, and I um, like to give my players a lot of freedom. Sometimes my love of story will slightly rail, railroad, but I think you do need a balance between that sort of freedom and. and and railroading, um, but there's nothing wrong with liking a combat. And on the other side of the coin, if you're big into role play and you don't really care for the combat mechanics, go for it. Yeah, it's great. Uh, do that. It, there's plenty of opportunities and plenty of things. There's ways to even sort of simplify some of the combat um, and just sort of minimize that side of it, and especially if you speak to the DM and everyone's in agreement, that's obviously being very important that everyone agrees that that's the sort of thing you want to play. Um, now, I suppose there's an idea. We've talk, talked a little bit about tips for new players, hmm. but every DM is new at some point. Have you got any tips you'd give to new DMs? <laughs> uh, it would be great if I could say DMs should play first, um, but it, 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 <laughs> that wasn't my experience. So, the old chicken and egg situation. <laughs> so, um, it, it, yeah, it'd be great if you could play. Um, if you could play first. Um, but I would... Hmm, I think... 
think about what it is you want from the game as much because you're gonna get you're gonna get bogged down in in what your players want and what they uh, expect from you, and that can be a lot. That can be a lot of pressure if everyone's like expect, puts a lot of expectations. Uh, and look, I play with players that that don't put any pressure, and they're good and they're free and they're happy to go with whatever. Um, um, but don't put that pressure on yourself to come up with something perfect. Not especially not the first time. It's probably even better not to go full homebrew because a lot of DMs you hear about like go f- homebrew the first time. Uh, I didn't. I went with um, uh, Lost Mines, um, or Fandelver, classic. classic. Uh, as it start is in the start kit, it's the perfect start adventure. Uh, you go with the Goblin Caves at the beginning, and you lose a couple of players to the old uh, to the old Hobgoblin. Whatever he is, no, he's a bugbear. Bugbear, yeah, bugbear. Clog or something yeah. to call? The infamous bugbear. Yeah. Players. I think that, that bugbear has probably killed more players than any other creature or BBEG <laughs> or anything. Um, it's it's funny you say that, actually. Don't, you know, Maybe don't consider going full homebrew like, and writing your own adventure from the start. Um, my main experience comes from simply doing that. Um, up until running Curse of Strahd, my first experience as a DM was playing in a homebrew, uh, well, DMing a homebrew campaign that I had written. My first experience as a player, my first real experience as a player, I did actually play two sessions, I think it was, of Lost Minds of Fandelver. Uh, and then it kind of just drifted off, unfortunately, as some games do, and that was many, many, many years ago. My first real uh, playing experience, I would say, was, was homebrew. And it, yeah, I agree. It, it's uh, it's certainly like jumping off the deep end if you're a DM and you're doing that, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And uh, the DM we had at the time did a, did a great job, uh, but there was definitely a, a collaborative effort as well. I think if you've got the group that'll, that that will work with, uh, then fantastic. But I'd say that, considering I've just finished Curse of Strahd hmm. as the DM, Having finished another of my own campaigns, probably a year or so prior to that, the amount I learned from running a book campaign was invaluable, completely invaluable, for sure. It's something to be said as well about uh, having that pre-written uh, campaign uh, and the the time saving. Like, uh, you know, Rob knows that I am someone who over prepares. My uh, <laughs> my lore documents are extensive. My <laughs> my campaign notes are enormous, and I've got better. I I don't know if better is the correct way to to view it. I have shrunk them down to try and stick to sort of smaller bullet points. And we did just run a mini adventure where I had very little notes whatsoever beyond the maps. Um, shout out to Incarnate. Um, but uh, I do love Incarnate. I do, yeah. You can do some good work on that. Um, but, yeah, uh, don't get bogged down in preparation, because, like I do, because you'll spend ages doing it, <laughs> and a long time, and then something might, you prepare and think, oh, this is a really cool idea. This is great. I want to throw this at my players. It's going to be great when it happens. And then um, they completely circumvent it, and it doesn't happen. Or... It doesn't go the way you think because your players just all gang up on it and one shot it, like in a in a surprise round. 
Oh yeah, we've I've had that happen to me as DM, and I've I've done that as a player. Uh, Sometimes it's great. I'm never going to say it's a bad thing because it's great, and it means the players have been imaginative and creative in it. But when you've just got like three pages on a word doc of like stuff that's supposed to happen and things that are supposed to go down and it doesn't happen you're like mm, okay but with a yeah. pre-written pre-written thing like Curse of Strahd um, there's none of that and it's pre-prepared and you don't have to spend the time you can spend the time focusing on other areas of um... yeah you can look for areas where you can adapt and because you don't have to do all the work it means that you can really devote time to tweaks that will make sense to, to fit the campaign to your players. And that's definitely something I tried to do when I was running that particular campaign. And, and going back to what you said about over-preparing, I think running homebrew is, is a little bit like that anyway. Um, my first campaign, I think I had to take two prolonged breaks because it just, working a full-time job, writing a campaign and, and not trying to go crazy. Uh, yeah, I, could, I, I couldn't do it. I would, we got to points where I was like, right, guys, that's pretty much everything. I uh, had the stamina to write. Uh, can I have a few months off, please? Can we do something else for a while? Uh, luckily, the group dynamic we had at the time was actually really good for that. We had a couple of us that were similar. Um, so we kind of leapfrogged each other a little bit. We played in one campaign for probably about a year and then went back to mine for a year or so. And it, it did work well, but it did mean that there was always that kind of first two or three sessions when we were getting back to the campaign where it was a little bit uh yeah a little bit jerky a little bit mm -hmm. of a bumpy ride when we were trying to everybody was trying to get back into the characters that they'd left and trying to kind of mentally separate themselves from other characters they played and it's it can be difficult so i think uh finding that balance in the amount of preparation for the story writing is is absolutely uh, going to be a key point yeah well, it's, we had a good, we had our, our, our luck when we were playing uh, Curse of Strahd, uh, in that we had a, a, a player, my, my brother, who um, is away a lot, so we can't put the same um, amount of uh, dedication, I guess you want to call it, to uh, into to playing D and D every week as we do play every week. Um, Doesn't have the availability, unfortunately. Yeah, um, but it meant that when he was home, we still wanted to play D and D with him. Uh, so we had that opportunity there, where we played Strahd during the time he wasn't there, and it was great. And he was there at the beginning, so we had to fade his character out a little bit. And I think Rob did a great job. Um, but then when he was coming back, uh, we still wanted to play D and D. We wanted to play D and D with him, but bringing him in and out of a campaign, it just doesn't it just doesn't work because you don't know how things are gonna change or evolve and it's and it's it's just not it's not feasible long term so it gave us opportunity to just do one shots which then give rob a break for or the dm a break uh from from dming prevents burnout and then i can i would jump in and we do a one shot or something like that or two shot uh as it, as it often was and sometime on the, well, I think the first occasion like a, a four shot and uh, two separate occasions um but yeah, preventing um, burnout, DM burnout, uh, yeah. doing that sort of rotation works really well. Um, and we, we're probably going to be doing that a little bit with our own other with our own game that we play. Um, 
we're always very open to the idea of. I'm sure uh, Rob would have no issue if I was like, need a bit of a break. Can you run a one shot for a week? Yeah, easy. Uh, and if it's in, in the other way around, of course, any day. Um, <laughs> so that's yeah, not a problem. But uh, should we move on to our next topic? We've done new players, new DMs. Even we did. Yeah. Next one we we prepared was uh, spell of the week. Is what I've got on my list. Uh, I don't know what you've chosen. You don't know what I've chosen. Nope. Uh, go on, you go first. You want me to go first? All right. Uh, I went for. Let me. I'm just going to make sure. I'm going to bring it up and make sure that I do keep the right information because I don't want to be like talking about it and going, hmm, that was, that was completely wrong. How embarrassing. Uh, but yes, uh, oh, that's person. So mine. Uh, see if you can guess it. Third level spell. Okay. Uh, it's a reaction. No, it's a reaction spell. <laughs> well, third level reactions. There's counter spell, which is the obvious one. Yeah, it's counter spell. <laughs> you got it yeah. first time. Yeah, I would say uh, counter spell is my spell of the week because. I loved it playing a wizard. Like, you are the bane of any sort of mage and um, enemy monster, whatever you want to call it. Um, because you can just, just like that, switch off their spell. Obviously, the higher level spells, and you can cast it at higher levels, and it's still effective. It still says effective. Um, it's a reaction. There aren't a lot of reaction like spells in general. Um, Not many. And being able to just like have Strahd point a finger at you, and you're like, he's gonna freaking fireball us, isn't he? And just go, <laughs> nope, I don't think so. Counter spell is great. Um, yeah, it maybe encouraged a little bit of the uh, player versus DM mentality, but it's fun. And if you in the with DM certain... on good terms, it's not an issue. Yeah, I would say with certain bad guys in campaigns or certain uh, encounters. A little bit of that uh, works well, especially with the right kind of players and the right kind of uh, creatures. Yeah, I, I can confirm as a, as a DM when Dan, as his wizard Emmerich, would counterspell the spells that I would be casting against the party. Um, he saved them many a time because spells can be quite uh, impactful <laughs> to yeah. the combat situation, I would say. I think uh, there was definitely a couple of spells where you just counted them and it was likely that it was going to lead to some player death. So that's, uh, yeah, it's definitely up there with spells. Mm. Anything else you want to add about that particular spell or do you want me to go on to I mean, you can, like, you can read it and in it, just everything about it is great. Like, so it it's just semantic. So you can do it with your hands tied behind your back. Like, yeah. Oh, sorry, you can't do it. You can do it with your mouse tape shot. Semantic means not yeah. words. Semantic is uh, signs. So you can do it with your mouse tape shot. Uh, um, we just need your hands, I guess. You could do it with your feet or whatever. However it is you, you uh, cast spells semantically. Um, it doesn't have any components, uh, no. really. It just requires you to be able to see a creature within 
60 feet who's casting spell um it's great it's instantaneous 60 feet is great range for something like that you could easily see some like the game designer hampering that and just going 60 feet a bit far but it's great um i mean there's no save against against it i've played against something that had i don't know if it was a homebrew or if it was that the DEM at the time had improved it, but I played against something that had a 75 foot camp range, and that was toxic. (laughs) (laughs) When you you know the spells, when you know how a spell works, Mm -hmm. uh, and you're playing an intelligent person that also has that spell, so you feel justified in knowing the range Mm -hmm. and staying at the correct range to make sure that you don't get counted in, in response to your spells, to suddenly be counted is like, oh no, (laughs) it's a scary moment. Uh, that was terrifying um, but then again that's another side to the to the counter spell is that wizards are intelligent people oh I say spell, some spell casters wizards for the most part being the intelligence based caster is uh, sometimes that range can also be its weakness because it's not it's a good range but it's not the longest range and, and if, the, if the caster is able to get outside of that 60 foot reach then they do get free reign on their spells mm-hmm. Um, but I would only justify that as a DM, like using that advantage when you know that the person who is doing that would have a really good understanding of the spell mm-hmm. and would, would understand its limitations. Like a wizard themselves, basically. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like a, if it's a, a good old wizard off. <laughs> uh, that sounds rough. <laughs> a wizard should know better. <laughs> but yeah, um, my favourite spell. I suppose because we're doing spell of the week and we're doing the first episode, it's probably going to be our favourite spells that have come out. That's what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, is I don't know if you've seen me cast this because I cast this a lot as Arthur, mm-hmm. my first warlock. Um, it is a, a little bit of a high level spell, uh, yeah. but he has been above level nine for some time, which mm-hmm. is when you get level five spells. Mm-hmm. And it is synaptic spat. Sy- I can't even say it. Synaptic static. Yeah. Now, this is probably one of those lesser-known spells. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an area-affecting spell. Uh, It's got a 20-foot radius sphere, uh, which is... uh, Is that a little bit smaller, or is that the size of Fireball? It's around about the shape of a Fireball. Radius, yeah, I think it's about the same as Fireball, yeah. Yeah, I always forget if it's 20 or 30 radius. Um, So, 20-foot radius, that's a nice big area. You're going to hit more than one thing. 40 feet all, you know, all together, so... Exactly, yeah. And you're going to cause anything caught in that area as you psychically scream towards it uh, to take an intelligence save, um, which is probably one of the lower statistics that you tend to find on a lot of creatures, unless you're fighting uh, quite a niche area of creatures that are quite intelligence-focused. Although it is two levels higher than Fireball, so the damage doesn't quite keep up because uh, it is the same damage as Fireball. It's 8d6, which can max out at quite a lot of damage, but it is psychic damage. So whereas Fire is, as a type, as a damage type, is fairly heavily resisted, depending on what you're fighting. Um, psychic is probably one of the least resisted uh, damage types. And I think because you're projecting this like mental scream towards this location i really love that it's psychic damage that they need to make an intelligence save now if they fail the intelligence save there is an added extra caveat and this is where this spell gets particularly juicy 
After a failed save, a target has muddled thoughts for one minute. Now, for those of you less first on D&D, not many fights last longer than 30 seconds in game time, uh, as a, a round of turns is six seconds. So one minute is a nice long duration for that. It's going to basically last for the fight. During that time, any time uh, that it would do an ability check or an attack roll, it rolls a d6 and subtracts that number from that. So if you rolled a 20 to hit, and I rolled a d6 and said, I've rolled a 5, subtract 5 from that, it's just, it's just really impeding the creatures. <laughs> and on more than one occasion, if Ross is, wa- Roch, uh, if Ross is watching, he will know. Uh, that it completely swung the tide of the fight, mm-hmm. dramatically so. Uh, and there's nothing that makes you feel more powerful than just screaming mentally at things and then them just not being able to hit anything, to pass any checks. Sadly, it doesn't affect saves apart from concentration saves, which makes sense because you thought someone else so you're going to struggle to concentrate on anything. But I think it's for me, it's a spell that it's powerful. It affects a nice big area. Um, it has a prolonged effect, which... Nope, does not require concentration. Um, and it's got good. really good flavor. So I think, it, for me, it, ch- it checks all the boxes yeah. uh, of what I love from a damaging spell. It's not just damage, it has additional effects. and Such such good flavor on that. I really like that one, personally. Yeah, it's great because, like, it says intelligence checks, right? Yeah. Uh, on it, on saves. You, any cre- likelihood, any cre- a lot of the creatures, you're thinking, like, mind flayers, right? Are they intelligence-based yeah. creatures? Are you often resistant to things like psychic damage? One of you know very very rare resistances. Um, so you're not going to use it against that, but anything else like most most of your typical uh, monsters, your ogres and your giants and stuff don't mm. typically have uh, high intelligence. Uh, there is a weakness to the spell as well. Um, if something has such low intelligence it might not be affected by the spell. So if something has two intelligence or lower, which is quite rare, let's be honest, mm-hmm. um, it would just completely ignore the spell because it's already so stupid, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. you're, you're looking at things like beasts, basically. Anything from, yeah. likely from a beast, yeah. the beast category is going to be down there. Uh, a rat or something. <laughs> or some sort of bird, perhaps. Uh, non-speaking creatures. Um, things that are likely to not be sentient, so don't have thoughts. It's a logic bind issue. Yeah, completely. Um, I don't think it's particularly come up when I've cast that spell. Uh, I know there are some more psychic spells that don't affect creatures that have four intelligence or lower, and I have found that I've come up against that barrier more often. But uh, no, I've never, never had an issue casting it. To be honest. Okay. You're saying as I should expect it. In future, uh, in future games. I'm not sure if I even took it on Fitz because I use it so much on Arthur. <laughs> no, I don't think you'll need to expect. Okay, that. okay. Well, not from you anyway. <laughs> I mean, I can't control what anybody, anybody else takes. Perhaps That's they're true. listening and taking notes. Maybe they are. <laughs> All right. Well, I think. I think they were both valid choices as spells of the week. Though I learned something, so yours can have top uh, privileged position as uh, as the true spell of the week. 
saying that, your spell would quite easily beat mine if I was within sixty feet. So yeah, if, I, if it was cat, if it was uh, <laughs> up upcast, I just have to wait until you've used your reaction already. Yeah, yeah. Try and get me to uh, to uh, use um, silvery bombs. Yeah, perfect. That's yeah. another one. Which again is a uh, I've heard of people banning <laughs> silvery bombs. Uh, from their games, I'm like, eh, why? It's, it's fine. Yeah. The reaction you get, think, you can do it once. Like, I don't think I would feel the need to ban it unless I was at a table of five or six players that all had it and all had multiple level one spell slots. Like, if the, there's un, it's, it's unlikely that a warlock's going to blow their spell slot on it. I'd know. Um, I'd, I'd, I think I probably took it. On Arthur, and maybe fit fits too. If it, I can't remember if fits had access to it, um, but nah, yeah. it's just you only get two spell slots at, up until level eleven, so it's uh, it's a bit of a big one to, to blow that on. Agreed. But your sorcerers and your wizards, and your bards. <laughs> yeah, bards. Bards go shout for bards. But it works exceptionally well with bards. Like it was designed for bars because it fits with that vicious mockery and the distant whispers vibes. Um, definitely yeah. a good shout. Um, it can go in third place, silvery bobs. Let me know. Then after uh, you do it again, or until we want to use it again because we run out of spells to dis- to discuss. Um, that takes a while. There's like how many? Six hundred, seven hundred. There's a lot of spells if you include everything from every book. Like you just chose what was from Xanathus, I think. Uh, I think it was synaptic static, uh, where as uh, calculus from Plays Handbook. Oh yeah, cool. So monsters that you've always wanted to use, as it's written in our notes. Basically, what some of our favourite monsters that we've never really got to throw at players from a DM's perspective, or I guess from a perspective of never got to fight either. Um. I uh, I have a good a good one for this I think and I think yours from what you told me is a good shout as well. Mm-hmm. We'll see what see what your explanation is to why it's a. I think it's a good shout. Um, you want me to go first? You can you can go first if you like. Yes, um, the creature that I've always wanted to fight against and always wanted to to use as a DM is the Beholder. I see you on the screen. As seen on screen, which, as you can see, is essentially a floating head. Um, I think one of the reasons I like it is it reminds me of there's a creature in Doom, the old shooter shooter game, yeah. that looks like it, not with the eyeballs around it, but other than that, quite similar. So I think there's a nostalgic element. But then, like once you've read its rules as well, they're quite fascinating. Um, I will be honest, I'm quite ignorant to the lore of them. Um, I only tend to read the lore of creatures if I'm running a, a book campaign because I like to make my own stuff up as well. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's a floating head. It's got a giant eyeball, some pretty nasty looking teeth, and loads of other eyeballs kind of attached to the end of tentacles. Um, now, it can shoot various beams out of those eyeballs. It does. Ten in total. And every turn the DM can choose 
Although I'd probably be quite tempted to play it chaotically and just roll some dice, see what happens. Yeah. Um, it can chew. It chews up to three of those beams. Uh, it can bite people with those vicious teeth uh, and be pretty damaging. Um, the eye rays can be all kinds of things. Uh, there's a disintegration ray, which is just 10 D8 force damage. And if it puts a player to zero hit points, they become a pile of fine grey dust. So drive past River for fine on that. <clears throat> <laughs> it's death ray. Petrification ray, sleep ray, and innovation ray. The target creature must make a DC Constitution saving throw, taking 8d8 necrotic damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful one. Mm. A lot of them are just just damage, but there's charm ray, paralyzing ray, fear ray, slowing ray. So not only do they do damage, I, I think there's quite a telling theme here. I like things that have multiple. Uh, uses. Yeah. I like the Swiss Army knife of spells mm. and creatures. Um, and they also have an anti magic cone. The Beholder's central eye, so the big central one, uh, <clears throat> creates an area of anti magic. It does. It's anti magic fields, as, as with the anti magic field spell. It's the same effect in a 150 foot cone which, by the way, is huge. Yes. Uh, at the start of each of its turns, the Beholder decides which way the cone faces and whether the cone is active. The area works against the Beholder's own eye rays. So it needs to be careful how it uses it, but I just think that's a really interesting creature. Um, and I imagine extremely challenging if you come up against it. I would like I... to see how uh, our group would handle it. I agree. I had a one shot that we did that that was the potential for you to come across a beholder oh oh i know which one you're gonna be it'll be yeah it was the bank heist it was the bank heist (laughs) it was in one of the vaults you could have come across the beholder um that would have been fun as probably as punishing as what you eventually bought as well with the uh the vampire um, maybe more so, depending. Uh, you weren't a particularly magic-heavy party, so the anti-magic field only has. It would have definitely have messed Susie's. Uh, was she a wizard or a sorceress? Wizard, I think necromancer. Yeah, oh, she is. Yeah, she would have not been great against it. Uh, I mean, I'd have been better against the vampire if I'd have remembered that monks can just break charm on themselves. Mm. Yeah, well, as we said before, yeah. everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> We do, we do. But I agree. Like beholders are great. Like they're like iconic D and D monster. <laughs> like yeah, iconic. Yes, iconic. <laughs> first pun of the day. First pun of the night. Um, but yes, I I agree. Great. Um, I mean, I'm just looking at its stat block now, and I'm like, its passive perception is freaking great. The little yeah. thing, right? His passive perception is 22. Your rogues are going to get past it. Maybe your monks. But that paladin in his chunky chunky armor, clanging around. Nah, you're getting past that. Um, A group check, even... uh, Even even with a... If you're doing it as a group check, going unnoticed. He's got lots of eyes. It makes sense. You're going to need password upgrades to get past that. 
without a doubt. Yeah, and then even even then, like, even then she's looking at you because you've still got to require what like, like the majority of your players to pass a DC twenty two. If that's only if he, and that's if that's only if he's passive, he's not actively yeah. looking. So like, you probably got a better shot if he's actively looking for you. Let's have a look at his stat block. I do uh, it is, but then I don't know because like. Yeah, you may be because he's still got plus twelve in his in his perception, so he's he's a nasty fellow. Um, he cannot; he only flies. So yeah, <laughs> but and he doesn't move very fast. But with those yeah. eye eye stalks, those eyes, he don't need to move. He can stay where no, he is, just chomp if he wants with his bite. But. Also got a great legendary. You got legendary, legendary actions as well. Three of them to use. Got a lot of some legendary actions. He also has layer actions if you if you want to play him within a uh, a layer. And also great because as we said before, like with um, mm. we talked about the great old one and the alienness of it all. Yeah. Uh, he's an aberration. And aberrations are. I always call him abominations because I always forget that it's aberration. But he's an aberration. Um, they're abominable. <laughs> they're abominable. 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 That word you just said. Um, but they. Oh look, high intelligence saving throws. Synaptic static might not work very well. Won't work great um, on uh, on aberrations because he's got good intelligence, decent intelligence. He's a plus three. Um, so yeah, they're. Aberrations, creatures from the astral plane, right? So they all look weird and they all look fun, just like Mr. Eyeball. Oh, and they have lair actions and regional traits and effects. Yeah, that's another reason why I love them. I like I like things that have their own little lair that have lair actions. That's always fun to just get additional options to throw at your players. Indeed. But. Over to you, what is your monster of the week? <laughs> My monster that I would love to talk about, and you already know, is the Elder Brain Dragon. Because who doesn't love the big Mind Flayer Dragon? <sighs> I mean, just look at the picture. <laughs> Enough said, right? It's yeah, great. It, it, obviously, it's a really high challenge rating if you're if you're a DM that pays attention to challenge rating. Um, yeah. It's twenty two, so it's 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 up there. It's a big beast. Uh, it flies, which is great. Everyone loves a good fly. It's speed alone, like just it's got forty foot movement on the ground, on the ground. So it's keeping up with a lot of players. Though I guess if you you got you got to be level twenty five in this bad boy. Um, or near near that range. Maybe oh, uh, fifteen, so yeah. Um <laughs> he has legendary resistances. Which you gotta love a you gotta love a monster with legendary resistances. Um but also he has the old tadpole Brian breath. Which is why I like him. But and even I I was reading this right when I was looking it up. Even if you like you have to make a save when it sprays you, yep. even if you succeed, you are still tadpoled. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's why it's notoriously terrifying. Yeah, rightfully so. Like it's a, it's not only is it a 
the elder brain of of a uh, of the of the Ithalid, the 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 hive mind stuffed into a dragon with those tentacles and a scary looking uh, tongue. Uh, it sprays uh, tadpoles all over you. Uh, it is it is nasty and it just lots of psychic damage. So even you totem barbarians, you're getting smashed by by that damage. You can't resist that. <laughs> just reading its attacks, even just its attacks are vicious. So like mm-hmm. multi attack, dragon makes one bite attack, two claw attacks, and one tentacle attack. Mm-hmm. Bite. It's a standard bite. It does a bit of extra psychic damage. It'll it'll be painful. I mean, it's plus fifteen to hit, so it's hitting. Not many things are getting out of the way of that. Claws again. It's mm-hmm. it's standard slashing damage, uh, but again, it's extremely accurate. But then you get to its tentacles. Fifteen foot reach. Fifteen plus fifteen to hit. <clears throat> Not a huge amount of damage, but if the target is huge or smaller, it's grappled. Yeah, it just is no, grappled. Make a save. No, it's like, shit, you grappled. Uh, you can try a save on your own turn. Uh, the dragon can have up to four targets grappled mm-hmm. at a time. <laughs> That's just. It's like I even look at the like you look at the picture like mm. it's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's, and the, to be grappled by it with no, like, you can try and get out of it, but if you're a, if you're a little weak wizard. You ain't getting out of that with a DC 18. Mm, be hard. Be very hard. Unless you've got some magic dice. Um, and, so, and again, like, it's a... It's, it's the Ithalid tadpoles, right? So, get sprayed, they get in your brain. They do damage. Like, at the start of each of your turns, I believe. Yeah, it does say that. start of each of your turns, it does damage. And if you drop to zero hit points, you stabilise... You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not dying, but you are unconscious. Where the freaking worm takes over your body, drill, drills into your brain, and takes you over your body and turns you into a squid face. Like it, it is rightfully terrifying, <laughs> and I love it. Um, it I love that that little caveat in casting a wish spell on the unconscious creature into <laughs> yeah. the station. Prevents it from turning into a mind flayer. Or, you know, if you've just casually got the wish spell to just, just use that way. I mean, to be fair, if I had the wish spell, I'd just wish to not fight that thing. <laughs> um, have you seen the, the legendary action, Shatter Concentration? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Going to get to it. Just while it's grappling, any any player that's has a concentration spell, spell that they're maintaining like an uptime on, you can just say, nope, you break concentration. Oh, by the way, you take a bunch of psychic damage because that really gave you a headache. Yeah. Just, oh, God. It I think the rough. the terrifying side of this is like, if you think of this in a campaign setting, mm-hmm. it, you could have like hordes of mind flayers suddenly besieging some large city. And it's like, where did these come from? And it, as, as the players went to investigate these settlements they find them completely bereft of people like nobody there and then eventually they realize that an elder brain dragon is just being soaring the skies unleashing its tadpole brine breath <laughs> and infecting entire towns to become 
colonies of mind flayers instead of people. It's, uh, That's terrifying. Spraying its load everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Rivers of Dracula. <laughs> they are tadpoles, right? They are tadpoles. Um. But yes, I, yeah, I yeah, it's it's one of those where it's it's uh, it's 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 BBEG quality monster. Like, may, maybe it's not the mind behind whatever is going on, but it is it. Well, I guess it is because it is. It's a brain. The brain inside. It's kind of brain <laughs> stuffed inside it. So yes, it, it probably is the brain behind it all, and that makes it makes it even more terrifying. Um, would love to throw this at my players. Especially you, Rob. See what you would do, because um, it would be a it'd be a rough fight, and definitely definitely a campaign long enemy, one that you make recurring, uh, recurring yeah. enemy. We all know that's how you make the best uh, big evil bad guys. Big evil bad guys, yes. For those who don't know, BBG, big, bad, big bad. evil guy. Okay. Oh God. Okay. No oh, God. Big bad evil girl. But I guess that gets quite a good uh, segue into um, one of our topics, which is uh, what's the best BBEG that you've come across and why is it Strad? As it was put in, in, in the notes. Uh, <laughs> one of the very good reasons for to, to vote Strad as one of the best, at least the best that we've come across so we can say on our opinion, based on our opinion and our experience, is because he's a reoccurring. Yes. Um, so I think I'll try and not use too many spoilers just in case um, any of my other players are watching, because we will be starting Ghost of Strahd probably in a, in a month or two. Or anybody who in general is oh, going to play. Yes, uh, but... It's probably something that is not going to be a secret that uh, Strad is a hands-on bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's a bully. Uh, he's there to be the constant thorn in the in the party's side. Um, terrifyingly so, because he's very strong. He he, he is a uh, what challenge rating is he? I think he's, is he like nineteen or something? He'd be up there, won't he? Um, he doesn't like. You know, his stat block doesn't look like it should be quite as high until you realise just how versatile of a combatant he is. Um, And, like, it is designed, you know, using all the various effects that that he can bring to the table. Um, He's got great motivations, trying to tread carefully here without giving too much away. Yes, avoid that. (laughs) Uh, He's got... Uh, <laughs> he's got the charisma in many ways. Yes. Uh, he often gets depicted as a, a big, sexy vampire. Um, there is a trope there. He's he's essentially Dracula. If if, mm-hmm. nobody, if anybody watching has never heard of, of Strad before, um, you know Count and, Strad von Zar- Zarovich. Yes. <laughs> he is. Um, he honestly, the thing that shocked me most about playing that campaign, and when I say shocked me, I, I think in a in a good way, not in a bad way, is if you have a successful session zero, which is probably something we could talk about for the next hour if we really, really wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have the right session zero, your players are going to know that the campaign setting 
is it's gothic horror. It's designed to feel a little hopeless a lot of the time. Uh, it's designed to be quite grueling. And the players know the campaign is called The Curse of Strahd. <laughs> He's there in the sense, you know, in the name. He is the uh, the bold name in the in the title. The headline, I should say, uh, is what I was trying to think of there, but was struggling. Um, so he's going to be present from start to finish. Uh, and it's really good watching your players engage with that. When, if you, the kind of DM that puts voices on, when you bust out that Strad voice yeah. and you just see if you're around at a physical table or if you with your players on webcam, on over Discord or whatever, um, up your is your choice, and you just see their faces, and you hear the audible groans or sighs, and I mean some of the stuff that I did to you guys mm-hmm. broke the Geneva Convention several <laughs> times. Um, yeah, made multiple of you um, shed tears, and would get text messages after the the session saying that was amazing, thank you. And I'm like, but I made you cry. <laughs> you want to feel emotion, everyone wants to feel emotion. I know, I know, I know. I know. I'm, I, I'm more jesting with that, but everybody yeah. knows they're going to get, it's like everybody goes in knowing they're going to get the shit kicked out of them. And it's thankful <laughs> that they do. And it's such a weird situation. And you hear so many horror stories about Curse of Strahd. And I think that's one of the, potential pitfalls is not finding that balance between um, (laughs) how you run the campaign Um, and it's not always a new player friendly campaign um, because it can be difficult at least to a certain point Mm -hmm. Um, but if you run it right I think it's, it's incredibly rewarding and any any bad guy that is present throughout the entire campaign as um, as a force is is just something that I think is probably the most rewarding for both DMs to run and players to experience. Um, there are other kind of bad guys to run, um, secret bad guys that pull the strings from the shadows. But I think even if I was doing one of those types, which is a completely different archetype, um, I would probably still use henchmen that were recurring um, and were were a face. <clears throat> and to be fair, there are those types that you could typically use in because of Strahd as well, mm. which we won't name because people will encounter them in their own time. Yeah. I can only say what it's like from the player's perspective with with, uh, with Stradi Boy. And uh, <laughs> every time like you'd be walking down the road and he turns up, you're always like, Ah, oh, what is it this time? What is going to happen this time? Who are you? Who who are you going to kill? Who is your plaything? Who is who are you going to wind up? Who are you going to break? Um, and it just it feels like there is a constant force working against you when you when you've got Strad because it always feels like you there's something else going on constantly yep. and I and mm. If you're lucky enough to have a have a have a have a good DM like we do, we did, I guess do. On and off do, uh, let Rob. Um, that 
you betray you can betray it in the subtleties of just the how manipulative he is um and straight away you just know that like he knows everything that's going on he has spies everywhere um he doesn't have to tell you it's just the way that he is um and the fact that he like i don't think we could probably talk about something without it being spoiled, right? Which, if, if I was to say, like, the whole what happened to Goldie, said... right? Oh, right, okay, yeah, I get you. Yeah, right. yeah the, the thing that happened to Goldie. I mean, that was partly Goldie's doing anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's not a designed part of the campaign. So, yeah, you can talk about it. Yeah. Okay, well, we had a player <laughs> who, who decided that when Strad had turned up, and he was just talking, and so far Strad had generally just been a bit of a talk. We had fought him like once before where he killed somebody. Um but didn't go well the fight. Didn't go well. say that the fight didn't go didn't end in victory for the players. But neither did this one either. This one did not end in victory. Because he was talking and he was just he didn't it didn't feel like he was threatening us at all, despite it being Strad, who was a threat. I think it was quite clear um to most that he had turned up to antagonize and talk. Mm. There's always the threat of violence, but sure, it's... he wasn't. He wasn't presenting <clears throat> as a threat anyway. He no, no, no weapon drawn, no claws drawn, no teeth, no magic being thrown at us. Um, he was there to gasp at you. One of our players, of course, um, was so intimidated by the presence of Strad, <laughs> uh, called upon the magic of his god. To try and um, sacred flame him, right? It was something like a cantrip. It wasn't even something like, like. It didn't start with that. It started with uh, him raising his crossbow, and he shot the driver of the carriage. That's right. That, that Strad had turned up in, uh, without naming names and characters and so forth mm -hmm. and so on. And the driver of the carriage turned and looked at who is obviously his lord. And it was a bit like, can I do something about that? Uh, <laughs> and then I didn't really get the chance to get many more words out in before describing the situation flame. before someone, Goldie, shouted, Sacred Flame! <laughs> and just wrote, he pretty much did what the what, what stereotypically bad players do and like rolled his dice straight away. And, uh, and at that point, it was just, all right, roll initiative. <laughs> yeah. Uh uh it was it was uh it was a moment um uh it was that moment as well where uh, uh old strad learned that my character had count spell in his back pocket with that fight yep. as well which could have been held for a later date but it it is it is what it is yeah that was a good but i thought that that was like <laughs> he strad had messed with us already and then the mood was set, the theme was set, that, like, I don't blame the player, really. I thought it was funny, <laughs> looking back. Maybe not funny for some for some players, including himself, who um, was deceased More thereafter. consequences. <laughs> or, or for, uh, or for um, one of our other players, Steph, who was um, also slain, but Strahd had his fun. And yeah. uh, continued to play games with uh, with her afterwards, as she was a dampier thereafter. 
But it, yeah, oh, yeah. But uh, it it, <laughs> it just shows you like this. It was great as well because like with, we felt at that point in that game that he was well beyond us. We stood no chance. But then when you yeah, get, he was. and then when you get later game and you're like, he's still tough, and he was, <laughs> he was tough. Uh, we still. It still felt like we had a chance, though. We were at, like we had a chance at the end. It was good. The progression worked, um, the way I assume it's done in the book, or the way that you did, it, at least. Uh, I definitely had to buff him at the mm-hmm. end, um, in certain ways. But I tell you what, I never buffed. I never buffed his damage output. Um, his damage output is obscene, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's why he's got such a high challenge rating. But one of the things is that, uh, and I think it's a an ongoing theme in my opinion that when we've I know we've talked about this before off camera where uh, a lot of creatures hate people's feels on the low side, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably a, a topic for another time. But he definitely had buffed HP, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, uh, well I, by the end he didn't need it in the beginning because. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the thing when you start. He's he he never has any. He doesn't have an evolving stat block. It's just you just have to use him with a bit of common sense and not absolutely kill everyone when every every time you have a fight. He's there to be that bully. He's there to put you in your place and laugh at you while doing so. But God, it's fun. It's really fun. He is. Like, I I just remember some like some great scenes. Even when um. My character sadly passed um, uh, in in a in a, in, a, in an incident um, involving his own foot, um, and I got to take take over as a new character. And their first encounter, his first encounter with um, to tour my my light uh, cleric. His first encounter with with, uh, with Strad, where he turned up in the camp. Um, was was unique and it was just like the two two butting heads a little bit but um definitely uh, Tora taking it seriously um and seeing this is undead foul abomination um as uh, and putting himself between uh, him and putting himself between Strad and the other players as well to take on this thing uh, and and Strahd just laughing it off and finding it hilarious. And not uh, quite. You didn't quite react the way Goldie did, though. Thankfully. No, no, I, uh, I, I knew better. I, uh, and I think Tor was just like, give me the opportunity. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then he. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, and then he did some things later on during a particular fight where he didn't give me the opportunity. Snuck in there. Howard Destradis. Um, opportunist, no. I think you mean. Opportunist, sure, yes. yes. But he was a... Yeah, he was a good... He was a good BBG. Yeah, Makes sure. Good BBG. I mean, I think it's not... The, the reason I, I phrased the the topic the way mm. I did is that is... I mean, Strad will always have a special place in my heart because I love vampires. Most vampires. Yes. Um, 
so it was always going to be something like gothic horror as a setting with the undead and everything is it, it just adds to the reasons that i would love strad but at the same time it's just the mechanics of of, of everything if you are running a homebrew campaign mm. and you have um a recurrent bad guy and the players get to find out that that bad guy is far beyond them mm-hmm. is a certain satisfaction for sure that comes from watching the players a grow to hate that bad guy uh grow to be wary of their presence and um you might not do it quite the same where as you do in Barovia, where, like you said, it's a very oppressive presence. Um, but it's it's that, like I said earlier, it's that as soon as they hear that that voice or they become aware of the, <laughs> that whatever the bad guy is that you're doing the same sort of thing with, uh, it's just that rewarding uh, reaction from your players. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> you definitely had fun with that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 funny because I think back to the games that I've run. Yeah, a lot of time with campaigns, I've either had to cut them short or they've just not got to the end point where you get to fight the BBGs. It's actually, I'm sure it's quite common, really. So you never get to that that final hurrah. Um, but I think some campaigns can take years to get to the end. Yeah. Uh, the I'm trying to think we had there's, there's we got shorter ones and then that have kind of had um BBEGs to some degree. Um <laughs> but I think that with uh, the other real one I, I I think I enjoyed quite a, quite a bit was when we did um what I got the the Nuri campaign. Oh yeah. When we had this um with the champion of malice. The champion of the evil god, essentially, um, yeah. who is actually, uh, as it as it turns out, possessed by a a pit fiend, um, and he, you guys basically find out where they were hiding out, saw that they're up to, and he was he was doing his monologue, go around sacrificing cultists as he was doing it, and I was very curious to see how long it would take. Uh, for you guys to step in, especially because we'd had the discussion of don't interfere with the bad guy's monologue before. Yeah, we do have, or did have a, one or two players that liked to uh, cut off the, the bad guy. Uh, and again, I think that's kind of a discussion you could you could have for a while, but like, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a balance because you want the role play to be satisfying but you also want to give the players the satisfaction of like being like, no, shut up, fireball. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's why Counterspell is such a great spell. It is, it is. But, uh, with, yeah, with my, uh, with my big, bad, evil guy, uh, he was homebrew. Like, he was mostly homebrew. He, I essentially took a warlock of the, of the fiend, um, uh, which comes from well nowadays it comes from Monsters of the Multiverse because they did a, a revamped one. Um, Fiend is handbook, is it not? It's uh, Warlock of the Fiend. I think it's from Volos originally. 
Oh, you mean an actual creature? Yeah, it's an actual stat block in the book. Oh, I, didn't, I um, thought you just um, applied some actual player character traits from the regular warlock. No, no, I took it from that and expanded. That's why I, I took it, I took the warlock and I took a lot of stuff from the pit fiend and I crammed them all together into one individual since he was slowly becoming the pit fiend. Um, and at the time. And I still think to today, to some degree, I was very concerned with the idea of a fight being three-dimensional, both yeah. on the maps, so, and but also with what's going on within the room. So we had sort of a whole experimental summoning type deal going on, uh, and your actions and what you did were affect, would affect the room around you, and there was the bolts of energy and magic coming out and striking things, and and. It, Basically, it, it didn't have to end the way it did, but there was a good chance that if this experiment, this crystal thing, this orb yeah. overloaded, it would blow up the entire castle you were in and uh, a good section of the nearby town, um, which yeah. led to a very good sort of uh, movie-style getaway sequence. Uh, the, the escape end. sequence was was really good, especially when uh, you learn afterwards that my character Narakis was on two HP the entire time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You stayed behind to like it was you wouldn't you stayed behind to sacrifice basically almost like as a sacrifice. I'm going to try and fix this. Uh, but Luke, my brother, he he, uh, his character, the uh, the sorcerer, he was gonna he was there with the magic broom and he was like gonna get him out of here. Yeah, and he yeah, did. He, he was there. There to save us, um, and we managed to to fly out through the explosion, um, dodging falling chunks of rock. I think any one of those would have put me out. Yeah, great thing as well with that is that it took sacrifice, and that's what really I liked about some of the stories yeah. you told me of games you'd played and stuff like that. Of the idea of of, of there's going to be this big explosion because you hadn't prevented it, and it'd been allowed to happen. And but the only way to sort of hold it off to allow you guys to escape and any of the civilians that were in the castle to escape, uh, was you sacrifice magic items. Yeah. Um Yeah, it was a it was a, an interesting situation when we Narakis was using his artificer knowledge. Zenkris gave up the the wand that was his birthright. Well, he considered it to be his his right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Potato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, he and, gave uh, he gave up the thing that was a catalyst to his magic. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It'd be interesting to go back to that campaign eventually. Mm -hmm. Perhaps when uh, when your brother's more available, and mm -hmm. uh, we can have him for that as well. <laughs> if you'd have run that fight now, so mm -hmm. now that you've gone through all of Castrad, you've DM'd multiple like miniature campaigns. Would you do anything differently? Would I have done anything different? There would have been uh, small things that I would have done differently. I would have... I would have made certain things clearer. Um, it was great because with the entire campaign, we had so many learning learning points. Like, of when... Like, things like when to run from a fight. It's, it's, it's always been. A, I love to try and get players to do that, so they understand that's a possibility. You don't always have to stay and fight. You can run. Um, but we had loads of opportunity, like learning opportunities about you know 
when you go down, it's not the end, and you can be brought back, and um, and a lot of players learnt about the whole like let your mo- let let your monster let your your boss monologue a bit. Yeah. Don't feel the need to have to rush into everything. Um, but there were certain things I think, especially with the sacrificing, I should have made it a bit clear what was going on when he was like yeah. killing these cultists. So that then she can try and create a, a a body for his dark god to come through into the world. Um, yeah, that could have been clearer. It maybe a little better communication from my point of view. Um, though there were some things where you guys were doing roles and roll the roles just weren't either weren't your forte or were just not in your favor when you were trying to figure some stuff out. I um, think um, it's one of those things that sometimes having DM'd as well is it makes you second guess things so as a DM I appreciate players that let me monologue so I was letting you monologue Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we all were at that point I think I I appreciate it it. it's great do it please let me monologue but I should have made a clear that I was this is one you could interview yeah but how would you make that clear because at the end of the day like he was sacrificing things for all I knew Mm-hmm. Mechanically, as a, a putting myself in the DM's shoes on that situation, he wasn't going to be the boss. He was summoning the boss. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of uh, that's. But I think that's probably what I thought at the time. It's I can't fully remember now going back. Can't stop you from metagaming, bro. What am I supposed to? <laughs> yeah, but no. But that's the thing. Like, um, I suppose I suppose that's that is one thing that if we had interrupted, um, if he was summoning the boss anyway, it would have happened in some way shape or form but uh yeah i don't know uh i'm sure this this maybe is a way you could have made it clearer but we were rolling rolls weren't good Mm -hmm. what was that creature that we had to fight in the doorway uh the um the nazagon (laughs) the hell knight i think is what they are um like one of those dark paladins but on a on a nightmare is that what it is well, the Dark Paladins that you fought were homebrew creations of mine. They, again, as with a lot of my homebrew creations, it was a, um, I think they're called Blackguard, beefed up. Yeah. That was my these Dark Paladins that I had. Um, he was something from a book. <laughs> I can't tell you which one it was. A monster from one of the books. Um, and it's yeah, either they're depicted in the book riding a nightmare, and they're oh, knights fair. and they're covered in armor and they're and they looked cool and i thought who would be a great position to be kind of like this ultimate dark paladin uh like of all the yeah. paladins you fought this guy would be great and he could hold the line a bit while uh uh the champion did his evil deeds under the under the watchful gaze of malice himself through the portal yeah. with uh with, a, with like his, that mirror that we were yeah. peering into the his, I suppose his plane of, of hell. Because your, yeah. your world works slightly different to canon D and D. I think one of my favourite parts about not just the end fight, but like the end of of that campaign mm-hmm. was when we met. Uh, I can't remember his name now. Um, Susie's character's dad. Oh, now you're asking. Um... 
Uh, oh my god, his name is gone for me completely. <laughs> I know who you but he was sat there in a room because he'd been basically cash rolling everything, mm-hmm. hadn't he? Um, so at, at that point, you we we chat outside of the game, and you knew that he was one of the people that I thought was going to end up as the BBEG, and we hadn't Orin. met him yet. Yeah, it was just Lord Orin, I think. To us. Yeah, Lord Orin probably did. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes, gone. Or Baron Orin, or whatever status he had. Yeah. Um, and uh, we learn all the things that we learn about the cloaked cabal. Um, so then when we find him, and the creatures guarding his door were just, instead of attacking us, mm-hmm. we're just like, you know, the boss wants to see you. That was, that threw everybody. It did. Uh, it was a really, <laughs> a really good moment. I can't remember, did you cliffhanger the session there or did we just go straight in and have another word? I think you cliffhangered the session. I think I cliffhangered the session once you went through the door. Yeah, I think we became aware of who we were seeing um, before going down into the caves underneath the castle and doing the final encounter that we were just speaking about. But Mm. um, it was just a very interesting concept because we had multiple potential BBEGs because again it's it, you were running it not totally different to Strad because we've mm. met this uh this this um servant of malice this champion of malice mm. several times but it was somebody whose identity was not known <clears throat> a little bit like the collector so far yes yes yeah um and so it's we still had a similar uh, satisfaction as, as with Strad, although he was he was definitely way less hands on than, than Strad because we just met him a few times and he did quite quite uh, catastrophic things. Um, <clears throat> so we were rightfully so um, guessing who that might be, and trying to find out and trying to investigate as much and interrogate as much um, servants of Malice that we could find. Um, to try and figure it out, and I would always uh, brainstorm whilst gaming with you, mm-hmm. uh, probably much to your self-satisfaction and chuckling <laughs> that I had X amount of incorrect theories. Mm. Um, so it was good to meet him. It was good to see his motivations, to see mm-hmm. that he was looking for a safe out, um, that he had... L- it was It was a nice thing to see that divide of zealotry and selfish financial gain. Yeah. Um, and like how those motivations can be completely different. Um, and it's almost without getting too political, it's like capitalism versus religious, like zealotry. Yeah. And it's, it's those sorts of, um, yeah, it's just very interesting to see how, how those different things played out and how we wanted to avoid, uh, their doom because they had seen that their side probably wasn't going to win. Yeah. It was being too reckless. <laughs> yeah, 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 really, yeah. He was always the guy to put his money uh, behind who he thought was going to be the winner, essentially. And then he was like, oh, I bet on the wrong horse. I'll give you all the information you're looking for, tell you where everything is, uh, and you let me go. And you did, because you had more important things to do. Um, and it was uh, it was fun because like you guys had like especially listening to you or or, or to my brother and like listening to you guys just like 
not knowing who people were, but you were suspecting like uh, different people and the ideas, and then be able to catch up. Because I love a good twist, I love a good uh, a good turn, I and I do it as much as I can. Um, to the point now, I think it's become expected, so it might not work anymore. Uh, yeah, we're looking for them now. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. got to try and outsmart you guys. The twist is there's no twist at all. It's all straightforward. That would be one of them. But yeah, I, I, I liked the intrigue of it, um, and I liked to bring, I liked to tie things back around. So everything was supposed to come back around again. Even if originally when I first did it, it didn't tie in. I would have ultimately bring it back round, uh, which obviously is the complications when you do homebrew, because. In a pre-written campaign, it's all generally thought of, though, as I think Rob learned from Strahd. Not everything is written in the book. No, no, it is not. <laughs> that's uh, that's one thing that um, was definitely challenging about running Strahd is because you can read the book as much as you like. You know, it's uh, it's in a box at the minute now in its little collector's edition mm-hmm. box, but. You know, it's it's a nice chunky book, but it's it leaves stuff up to the DM. But sometimes it doesn't tell you it's leaving stuff up to the DM. Yeah, and I think that that was one of the slightly frustrating things about it. The book itself was laid out not in an amazing fashion, but saying that because it can be quite a sandboxy world, I'm not sure that there's a better way to lay the book out. So that's just more of a of a mild grievance. Um, but there's certainly parts in there where I remember we were at the end. You guys were doing endgame stuff. You guys were doing spoilers. Um, and I found out that um, there was something, there was a spoiler that was uh, available at the start that could have been more impactful to the campaign. Um, and it felt like a bit of a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Very quickly let that frustrate him frustration go because it wasn't like it was a it was something that I felt was missing it's mm. just when you find out like oh well that was a thing all along I could have used that and, and there's just a few little bits as well like and it's it's kind of reading ahead is something that will only help you so much because there are so many um, little bits to, to read depending on what the players do the way it's laid out in a book and some of the little text boxes that it says read to the players is like describes it as suddenly raining outside mm. where none of the text boxes have described it that no. way so far. So like when you, when you're reading it and you're trying to just read it outside whilst also reading it yourself, um, not for the first time, but yeah, definitely for the first time that session, because I did read the majority of the book well beforehand. Um, it, it throws you off because you're like, Oh, hang on a minute. It's not raining because I didn't say it was raining, but I was just saying it's raining. So it's now raining. Uh, uh, forget that bit, guys. And it kind of just breaks the immersion a bit, and it can be a bit frustrating. <laughs> but that is the challenge. Yeah. Oh, it's it's my my experience with pre-written supposies. I said Lost Mines and uh, Horde of the Dragon, uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen, which never got particularly far in. Um, and you don't. It's like, how much do you want to read ahead sometimes? Because like, you probably skim everything and then read the first bit. You know, it's a long 
it's a you know a big book. Um, you kind of feel like if you get too far ahead, you're going to be caught up in the stuff that's going on there. You're not going to remember the stuff that you need to remember from where they are now. Um, and you're just going to get all confused, all messed up, all muddled up and confused. It's best just to stick maybe like a you know a chapter ahead of of where they are. Um, but then you get, yeah yeah with, uh, even with but even with homebrew stuff like you will be reading whatever you've written as a DM like you're gonna read That's from true. a book or you're gonna read from notes that you've got like you're always gonna have some reading or some notes you can't remember everything that you've written as much as I I, I try to and a lot of it is is up here um, most of it's up here and there's stuff that I'd never check my notes for. Um, but there's got to be times where you're going to go, right, um, where are we? Oh, that's where we are. We're doing this. Wait a minute, it's raining? When did I write that? Oh, when did it say that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It happens. Kind of things that uh, you don't necessarily think are fun. And like, like you're saying, you know, like you, you can, even in homebrew, you've you've written notes about, let's say you've written notes about a village that your players have been to. And you've written that there is a blacksmith's forge, which mm-hmm. is run by I don't know, some copper uh, dragonborn that's working the bellows or whatever. And you've given them a name, and then you name all the other NPCs that run the tavern, run the, the shops, local leader of the Adventurers Guild, all that sort of stuff. And you put all that effort in. And then you take a, a year-long break, <laughs> yeah. and you go back and you're like, um, oh. "It was raining." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens in a week though. Like you could just have a week go by, and you'd be like, "So you were here? I think you did this. Yeah, I think you shot rested. I think you long rested. What does your character sheet say?" Um, or yeah. It, it or you can tell all the players to take a, a long rest and you come back and only half of them did it. press the button on D&D Beyond if that's what you're using and they're mm. like, did we get a long rest? And it's like, I hope so because nah. yeah. player X and player Y have had a, a long rest so if you haven't then you're doing yourself a disservice. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely a, a thing. But since uh, we, we, yeah. we kind of covered one of, the, one of the topics on the list. Um... I think we can go into it a little more detail. It's, it's definitely good for people who want to be a dungeon master or a game master if it's not Dungeons and Dragons that you're interested in. Um, and that's just generally about how we approach building encounters. That's but, definitely a subject, but it's a subject. Yeah. go first. Me go first, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on the situation, largely. Um, but if we keep it simple, say we're, if, we'll, we'll start with what we call random encounters, right? So random encounters are usually a table of encounters. Uh, you roll a dice, and whatever the outcome is, is what do you choose from that table, and that's what happens. Uh, if I'm building a random encounter for that, I'm looking at monsters that I want you to fight and that fit in with wherever the players are, and there's not much more to it than that's a good monster for them to fight. Yeah, it's uh, not gonna do. It's gonna whip out some damage, but it's not gonna do too much because it's a random encounter. We don't want to kill the players. We just want to inconvenience them. 
And they're great for on the road and stuff like that. If it's... Random encounters are an interesting concept because quite often they'll also randomise the number of, let's just say, as happened many times, mm -hmm. wolves show up. Mm -hmm. um, they might say 3d6 wolves, and that could be anywhere between 3 and 9. Yeah. Well, no, 3 and 18, if I actually do my maths correctly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's can, can be quite a swingy fight. But if you're designing a homebrew fight, what mm -hmm. would you do to prep for that. For, for, for talking random encounters? Or, oh, or, random or just one that you've decided is happening? Decided, one that decided to happen. Well, because I'm very... With the campaign that we played last, I'm very story focused, so I generally know uh, if it uh, fits in with a story for you to come across characters at a particular moment, and whether or not they would be a threat. Um, yeah. But usually... Uh, I will go, what will be a really interesting location for players to fight in? And what uh, what monsters, if monsters in any term, whether they be humans or whatever, what wouldn't be the most logical to be in this, in this situation? Or what would fit narratively in that situation? And um, how are they going to engage the players? Uh, I don't as well as, well as, as the old uh, proverb says, uh, a plan doesn't survive contact with the enemy. So <laughs> I don't plan out the fight in any particular details, just generally be general behaviours. Yeah. Uh, it would be like a bullet point on this guy will do, will be more reserved, more conservative, or this guy might lead the charge as a vanguard. I... Uh, but I and I like to have interesting maps. It's something I'm very focused on. Is that I like, as I said, to create an interesting environment for the fight to be in. And it, I feel like it, almost like it should be a puzzle in of itself. Yeah. So if we think about um, the one that I often think of is when you guys went into a, into a brewery, where you found out they were producing the black ooze that was being used to basically contaminate people with the dark magics of 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 malice yeah um i knew there was no real i didn't want any fight i wanted you to be working your way through the rooms discovering lore and information that the the encounter that i wanted would come into the main area because i had balconies and i had vats and i had barrels of ooze leaking out and i had plenty of places for people to hide players and characters uh, I wanted to make sure that, as I've, and I still make the mistake regularly, is how <laughs> I uh, use too many uh, monsters in a fight. Yeah. So you, I think by that point in that campaign, I come to a good balance, and I knew what, and I was in a better position, unlike what I recently just did and just threw an entire army at you, which is my mistake. I <laughs> um, that was just time consuming, though. That was the only yeah. thing. Like, it felt great if it just ended at like half two in the morning. <laughs> it was a late one. But with that, with that uh, brewery fight, um, I wanted it so that there were some enemies that. There was a good shot that you guys would be sneaky. You'd had a bit of a, a history of being. You weren't running their guns blazing. You had a bit of a sneaky side to you. So I always had these like lower level guys that were not really a threat, they were just there to kill. And kind of trap you to expose yeah. 
um, to expose you from your from your stealth by shooting, casting spells. So then my stronger enemies, my dark paladins, um, could have, take the opportunity to do their their mutation and turn into the big ugly creatures that they could. Um, but yeah, I, I see I see an encounter much like I see a puzzle. Yeah. Take into account the map, what's in the room, and how how is it to be solved? It's not my sure. It's not my decision to solve it. It's not up to me to solve it. I just create a problem and give you guys uh, a shot at solving it. I think the map is a very good point to make. I've made encounters, and the encounters. When I say encounters, I'm always talking about combat. Really, um, role play encounters are a totally different topic, but. Mm-hmm. I've made encounters that were enjoyed by the players. Um, I still felt weren't successful because I made an entire map. And because the players sometimes can get quite tunnel visioned on just beating the enemies, the map stagnates and it becomes a, a quarter of the full size because nobody leaves like mm-hmm. the smaller areas. So I think that's something to definitely consider when you are planning encounter is is the puzzle of the map and adding layers to it making sure you remember to interact with it yourself as well to almost show the players that they need to interact with it as mm-hmm. well so like get bad bad guys up on balconies or mm-hmm. um you know then your melee units need to get up there mm-hmm. um or you your ranged spell casters or rangers or whatever it is you've got need to need to deal with that threat uh, i think when i'm starting to plan an encounter if i'm going full homebrew if i'm building a one shot or a if I'm running an entire campaign and I'm, I know that the players are going to have X amount of fights in, in this dungeon or in this situation that they find themselves in, every fight I do, I always need to first of all understand what am I achieving with this fight? Is this fight designed to show them the things that they are fighting, give them information, or just simply act as, as the pure fact that the, the place that they are trying to pass through or the bad guy that they're trying to reach at the end of this dungeon still has things populating this dungeon, mm-hmm. so they would be, you know, you're not going to walk through an empty place. So, like you said earlier, it's, it's almost inconvenience players, but also, you know, it's combat's fun, so mm-hmm. it's part, it is part of the fun. So, you, when you're thinking about the encounter, choose what it is that you want that encounter to reward, uh, whether it's knowledge, whether it's um, just beating some some enemies that would otherwise cause more of a problem later on if you got to the end of the dungeon and they were still there. <laughs> yeah. I um, think you're right, it's goal goal is what is the goal of the, yeah. what is the purpose of the of the encounters? Probably one of the first yeah. things to to do. Um whether it is to open the uh, the the town uh, gates to let it let everyone else in. Yeah. Um as we did uh, recently, um, with the orcish one, yeah, the orc, yeah, with the orc adventure. Uh, whether it's to discover what's being done, what's going on in the in the brewery, and then, and and deal with uh, uh, the machinations of the enemy. And then I think you, you obviously you need to spend some time focusing on what creatures the players will be coming up against, and to really. Balance that as well as you want. And by the way, not every fight has to be balanced. Um, some fights can be easy. 
making players feel powerful in some fights. Like Strad can be mm-hmm. not necessarily unwinnable, but designed to reach a point where it feels that way. Um, but for more of a standard encounter, where which is going to involve multiple creatures that the players need to either convince to not fight them or beat them in a fight or do something similar. I would say the first hurdle is knowing your party. How do they act? What's the, what's the dynamic of the group? Is there a paladin? You always need to know that (laughs) because, because those smite crits, you've got to watch out for them. You've got to watch out for those. How many times I've put a a monster in a, in a fight with my party and, uh, the paladins just uh, <laughs> critted and then dealt a massive, uh, massive smite. And to be fair, uh, Felicity the Rogue did that a couple of times as well, mm-hmm. where the the creature, the the more central creature, the strongest enemy that might be surrounded by underlings, suddenly just gets three quarters of their HP knocked off in a single mm-hmm. uh, attack by a single player. So be be aware of the max damage output of your players. Um, but also be aware of their, all their max HP, um, and, and need, you need to think how much damage do I want to do to them in a turn? Um, <clears throat> what am I going to put on the field, and how many things am I going to put on the field? Because action economy is also uh, one of those elements that can really take players by surprise. So if if you've got a single chunky giant or ogre or that is only doing one to three attacks a turn, even if they're very damaging, that fight can be, that damage can be mitigated by utility spells, by Mm. control magic, by uh, features and and abilities like Battlemaster features of Mm. battlefield control. Uh, A lot of classes will have ways to at least slightly subdue a single enemy. Um, Whereas if you put 10 goblins in front of your party that can fire off 10 to 20 shots a turn um, with with short bows or slings or throwing axes or or, or javelins or whatever um, if they all decide to focus on on something they're gonna they're gonna, they're gonna take that player down so it's just it's just kind of deciding the way they're going to act the amount of impact you want to to have on the on the fight. How are you going to split them up? So are they all going to take their turn at the same time, or are they going to take take their turns separately in the initiative order? Um, because that can be very oppressive if suddenly ten things suddenly act. Um, as I said, if a player has put themselves in the only logical place where all the creatures that they're facing would attack them, there's a high likelihood that they're going to get hit with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that goes back to the environment, the map. Uh, but you're really looking at uh, opportunities as well to, in that kind of puzzle that you described, you want opportunities to make players shine. Uh, not every fight needs to be an opportunity for every player in the group to shine. Uh, otherwise, they'll end up fighting for the, for the opportunity without even realising it. Um, you need to challenge your players. And again, it's not about always thinking of what you want the answer to the puzzle to be, but giving them something that they can solve in multiple ways yeah agreed I think uh, with 
for, for pure mechanics, I suppose, uh, numbers to look at it, is be wary of your player. Probably your the lowest HP, the hit points player you've got, who is yeah. actually the squishiest. And what is the average damage output of your enemy? Um, their hit points are flexible, shall we say? Um, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you, if you want him to be no, you know, this guy turns up and he's on his own. You're like, yeah, we can beat one guy, but you want him to be tough. You want to be making sure that you know you can almost you can do at least half, take up half hit points on somebody. Uh, on your weakest player, you need uh, to apply that instant um, tension mm-hmm. by doing that. Uh, so that's really the, the two main stats to look at: are your player's HP and your and your monster's damage output. I would say, um, good idea to pay is also if you if your monster has spells, keep an eye on on, on what they've got because if they've also got uh, or eight, or just their stats in general. So if they've got great movement, or they've got something like Misty Step that allows them also to move around a lot, um, that is something to take into account because it's likelihood that a player who is that weaker player who may have just taken a good smiting himself, uh, <laughs> if they can't retreat because they're because the movement speed of the enemy um, allows that enemy to keep up with them, it it, it might feel it might make that player feel a little bit like they've been targeted. Um, yeah, so it's, it's about making into. moments of peril, but not overdoing it. I yes, think. that's the balance that you can find there. Yes. Um, I think one of the other things when I'm preparing an encounter as well is you do hit a point. I suppose this kind of goes back to the conversation, like really at the start of the stream where we were talking about new DM tips. Mm. Adaptability is mm-hmm. one of the most important things. So you just mentioned a scenario where. The players may be walking along the road. They may see in front of them the classic scenario of a downed tree. Suddenly, two bandits jump out of the bushes behind them, cutting off their escape. And you may have designed that encounter to only have those two bad guys. Mm-hmm. And if you have ill-prepared the encounter, um, and it suddenly looks like it's going to be way too easy for the players, there's absolutely nothing wrong with balancing the scales and suddenly three more bandits burst out of the bushes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to do. It's your players won't know any different. Um, and it's, it's just about building that flowing narrative to the fight. Um, one thing I adapted a, a long time ago is phased fights as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do it for every fight. It becomes cheap then, but Boss fights. Yeah, I learned. Let's be honest. I learned it from playing World of Warcraft mm-hmm. um, back way back in the day when I used to still play that awful game. Um, it, I was I wasn't playing D anD D at the time. I was playing old Warhammer Quest with some friends at a, at a local hobby shop, and I ran like I suppose it would be a, a one shot. I think it actually carried off over maybe two or three sessions mm. and they got to the end of it and as the way that particular game works the way the magic items work is you get a lot of one use effects so 
players tend to save those up because they know there'll be a boss fight at the end of the adventure. Um, and it kind of sim- it, it provides the similar threat that we joked about the Paladin providing, mm-hmm. i.e. lots and lots of smites to suddenly unload on the, on the boss. So in in the games that we were playing that were DM'd by the uh, the friend that ran the, the games, I'd noticed the trend that we just wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't shot the things that we came into contact with at the end. And I was like, oh, this is an expected established theme, so let's break that theme. Um, and they, they did. They The first phase, they one-turned the first phase. They did the required amount of damage to the creature. The creature fell back. It was, I think, it was a big giant. We were playing in person, so I, was, mm. I think it was the the big giant model you can get for, from from Games Workshop. I remember it had a cow at its belt. That's how big it was. Mm. Um, and they knocked it over, and upon hearing it scream in pain and the cow cry out as the giant fell onto it, uh, goblins came out of cracks in the walls and that. Uh, I can't remember the name. Of the, oh, is it Anixia? I kind of tried to copy that, like the theme of the fight in World of Warcraft, where you fight the dragon for the first part, it disappears, then enemies come forward and fight you, and then once they're dead, the boss kind of gets back up. In my, in the giant's case, mm-hmm. it's stopped crying in pain, um, got back up, and put up a, an even greater fight, and it really kind of taught me that um, how to implement peril how to put twists in a fight when players have a very specific kind of um, expected... Uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? I suppose it's just, just an expectation of, of chain of events. Um, it's definitely not the word I was trying to think of, but I'm sure it'll come to me later yeah. once we've stopped dreaming. Um, and ways to break that and, and surprise you players because that always provides enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah, phases are good. Like I will sometimes, if I am uncertain, so if we're going in with a new party, a new group, and you're uncertain of the your players' knowledge, um, how they play, or, or sometimes even like what class they're going to play when you're designing your encounter. Um, I will quite often have in my I'll have my notes. This is the monster I'm going to use. If it's a, if it's not homebrew, it just be like this is a link to the this thing on D and D Beyond, or it's in this page in in the monster manual. And um, and then I'll have a little note, a couple maybe a couple of bullet points, and one of them will might be if this happens. They, if he dies too quick, this will happen. Um, uh, or if if in this previous encounter they walked it, and this guy is only a little bit more powerful, not enough to make a difference, they maybe give him a little resistance to something. Um, yep. Because being able to adjust on the on the fly is very important, I think. Don't uh, once you create an encounter or you are going to play an encounter that is already pre-written, uh, don't be afraid to be flexible. Absolutely, I think one thing that a lot of people forget as well, even experienced DMs, is when you're looking at creatures and it shows their stat blocks in the monster manual. I'm not 100 percent sure on how they display on D&D. In fact, I can find out because I've still got the old dragon up. Yeah, it does it. It does it the exact same way. So mm-hmm. looking at the hit points of that 
it says the average, which mm. for the Elder Blade Dragon is 350, which is very much on the high side. But it also then says how you would generate that, yes. which is 20d20 plus 140, which it doesn't take a mathematician to look at that and think, actually, there's a much higher maximum HP available there. Mm-hmm. They just give um, the average, is what they do. They, they do, but I think a lot of DMs get into the habit of just going, oh, that's its HP, because you can mm-hmm. see the average damage as well um, on, on their attacks, but nobody seems to really use that as much. I think you look at the HP and you take it, but you look at the damage and you, I think we think as players think, and we're like, I need to roll for damage for sure, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily need to roll for, for the HP. Um, where in actual fact, going back to that really obvious and basic scenario that I mentioned of bandits jumping out mm. of bushes, that HP doesn't have to be on the low side or the high side or anywhere. Like, if you want, if you want them to have a, a lower HP, uh, because what's their day been like? Are you the first lot of adventurers that they've jumped out on? Mm. Um, have they have they had to put up a fight? Um, they might have actually taken some hits already, and they might not have recovered. Uh, all that being said, they may be the biggest fish, the biggest fish in that local pond, and they mm. may have. A lot of HP because they've had to really take care of themselves. And, um, so there's nothing a lot. I think what I'm trying to get at is that you see plenty of YouTube videos and, and conversations being had where people look down upon inflated HP when actually the rules are already in the Monster Manual to oh, show yeah. that there, there is an inflated ceiling to what you look at. Um, so don't be afraid to use it because. Really? Uh, Good balanced encounter is more satisfying not just for the DM but also for the players because if the players walk every fight they'll start to get bored just as you get bored playing video games that are too easy. Yeah, agreed. Okay, agreed. Yeah, because the way that I generally treat um, HP is that you look at the I will take the average as this is my starting point. Um, I pretty much would say. 90% of the fights uh, of the encounters that I run players will get to that and then they go and then they'll be like oh he's looking bloodied <laughs> yeah because that's nearly always the way but that is like that is that is a marker for me um if it, it, it most of the time I'm adding and just, like if I want it to be a big fight I might just chuck on 100 hit points and if that goes in a round I'm like oh well maybe a couple couple more um yeah. But there's a, it can be on the other end, it rarely is on the other end, but it can be on the other end where your players are doing some great stuff, but this guy is outmatching them. Like, mm. So you just, you know, go to the, to the bottom end of their sort of um, HP uh, range, cool. I guess. Uh, generally doesn't happen. I think I maybe did it once. Um, yeah. Uh, I usually really would only do it in a fight where there's lots of enemies because you you don't want to have to keep track of every single person. Sometimes sometimes you're like that was a good hit. Why not? That guy's gone. Minions are, a, are an interesting thing as well. It's an old D and D rule. It's not in fifth edition, but it's something that I think is good to to yeah. use either way. And that's like if you've got lots of what have now become weaker enemies if your players are a little higher level and they, they come up because they're still going to potentially come up against goblins, mm-hmm. skeletons, wolves, 
other beasts, whatever the, the weaker stuff in the in the monster manual. Um, they might still be something big there, like a load of goblins might be with a with a giant uh, or an ogre or whatever you decide because you're the DM and it gives you place them all in a nice forty foot uh, diameter sphere. <laughs> and, uh, the party's got a wizard that likes to use fireball. They'll probably die anyway to the fireball, so it doesn't really matter if their HP is one or twenty-five. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just it's just knowing like what again that goes back to that. What's your party? What mm-hmm. are they going to bring to the fight? Um, is it likely that those are all going to get absolutely roasted by a fireball on turn one? Um, and let your players enjoy that because it's a fun thing to do as a player. Uh, you don't need to do it in every fight, but no. giving opportunities to do it is, is certainly a thing. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we, I think, have talked for a considerable amount of time about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Uh, who, who knew uh, that we could do it um, beforehand and that it'd be a good idea? Uh, so, uh, we will come to an end of our inaugural episode of Awkwardly Big Dice. A D&D podcast. I thank everybody who tuned in and watched us. Uh, the VOD will be going up on YouTube, hopefully tomorrow. If not, it'll be later. Uh, <laughs> the weekend. Uh, hope, make tomorrow. sure you get it done before Baldur's Gate drops on PS5, uh, because then all I, I will I, I will do. I will do my best. <laughs> um, but it should it should be um, tomorrow. It to fall on there. Uh, check out our various socials. So we are on Instagram, Awkwardly Big Dice, YouTube, Awkwardly Big Dice, Twitch, as you are here, click the follow, Awkwardly Big Dice, and then on Twitter as Awkwardly Big Die due to character limit. Um, <laughs> I just got the C. But I thank everybody for watching. I uh, hope to see you all next week when we record for episode two. And yeah, I hope all your dices roll a natural 20s. Peace. Have a good one. Thanks for joining.